The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. They left France with a notion of the French language that was more represented by Rabelais than by Ronsard a century later. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Linguist Podcast. I am Jarrett, and I am your host. This week, we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Barry Anselet of the University of Louisiana in Lafayette, uh, Professor Emeritus. He is a folklorist and a historian and uh, has been working pretty much his entire academic career on uh, the question of French in Louisiana. And uh, we've really had a fantastic conversation, and I hope that you're enjoying it. Uh, Last week, we talked about how French developed historically in Louisiana. Uh, The establishment of Code of Phil, the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana, C-O-D-O-F-I-L. We also talked about important events in the development of French in Louisiana, such as the effect of World War II, the counterculture movement, uh, the development of radio, and so on and so forth. We also mentioned some of the unique features of uh, Louisiana French. This week, we continue a little bit of that, but we also talk more specifically about Louisiana French identity and literacy. So we get into questions of why is... French in Louisiana different than standard French or modern standard French? How did they develop uh, on different pathways, so to speak? We also talked about some unique uh, vocabulary words in Louisiana French. We talk a little bit about the arrival of the Acadians and uh, how this term Cajun developed. And then we talk about varieties of French across Louisiana Finally, we talk about the 1955 Bicentennial, why that was important, and the very first attempt to standardize written French. So, I do want to mention that I received some constructive criticism this past week about recent interviews, and I'm glad to get it. But this particular listener pointed out that I had become a little lax in explaining concepts and terms during the interview. So in the past, I have stopped people for just a short second and explained some of the terms to the listeners, a little bit of background information uh, to help the listener along in understanding some of the things that we've talked about. But I do admit that I have become lax in doing that over the past couple of episodes. So since I can't correct that in this interview, one of the things that I've tried to do is give you as much information as possible from the interview on the show notes. So if you go to the website at weeklylinguist.com, pull up the show notes for the episode that you're listening to, I've included a section called phrases and words used in this episode. And you'll be able to see Uh, right there in front of you, the French and the English translation of uh, some of the expressions and sentences that were used in the episode. And I hope that helps. But as usual, I've also put in resources mentioned in the episode so that you can delve a little further and dig a little deeper if you'd like to on some of the things that we talked about. 
Let's go ahead and start the second episode, the second of three parts, with Dr. Barry Ancelay. I rewinded a little bit on this episode so that it starts smoothly. Anyway, without further ado, our continued conversation with Dr. Barry Ancelay. Well, let me ask you this. Um, I want to set this, the, the Louisiana-French situation between Louisiana-French and what I, I'll call continental French, because standard French is... I prefer continental to standard French. We've come up with all kinds of uh, descriptions for that, like impositional French. Uh, I like that one. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's actually, I think it's okay to call it standard French because it is a standard French. But, you know, it's uh, not so much that we have to take that name away. We have to do is add ours. Right. You know, ours is a a variant. So one of these lines that you wrote and I thought was very interesting. For historical reasons, the French spoken by the people who would become Cajuns around uh, uh, starting in 1630-1640 is different than the French as it became or as it developed in France, you know, based on the Académie and and all of them. Mm-hmm. For one thing, a majority of these people came from a very specific region in France, the north of Poitou, uh, in the area around Loudun and Lachaussée. And uh, towards the west in the area around the Saint-Ange. Yeah, Saint-Ange. So this is what you have when, when you're thinking uh, Cajun French or Louisiana French, which I want to ask you about the difference, is not so much a, a, a bad way of speaking regular French by people who aren't cultured. This is a, a stereotype that's untrue. What you basically have is you have two – you have a variety in France that was one of many varieties before standardization. Right, it was four four hundred years ago that split off from a single area and went to what is now Canada. So, number one, you have the fact. And, that and remember, remember, very important. They they started leaving in sixteen thirty sixteen forty. When was the Académie Française established? Sixteen fifty. So yeah. we our ancestors left speaking the way they did, not even knowing that France was going to do that. Right. That, you know. Right. Right. Who, and then, how, how could they have known? How could they have known that they got the, out just in time? Yeah. <laughs> how, how could they have known that the word for a twin would would they would decide it was jumeau and not besson? You know, they didn't have a way of knowing that. <clears throat> uh, they left. Fra- I often say they left France with a notion of the French language that was more represented by Rabelais than by Ronsard uh, a century later, and Vaugelas and all of those people who who uh, in in the course of standardizing, centralizing, choosing one dialect that was going to, you know, be the right one. Uh, what they did was they, they, in a lot, in a lot of ways, restricted French. They, they. Um, now, some would say they made it more precise, maybe, but, but they, they restricted. They, uh, the, the vocabulary. Rabelais' time, the vocabulary of. All these things that you know could conceivably could be called French, Frenches, uh, the vocabulary was humongous. Where and then a century later, the vocabulary had been reduced a lot because they decided this is the word, not these three. Right, because you had hundreds of, <clears throat> of, of speech varieties oh, in absolutely. France at the time, if not more. And this was—we're talking about one centralized region. Out of all of those other ones, I've heard that there there was a. a a chain of, of, of what they call it, a dialectical chain to where 
the, like the, the northern part and the southern part of France, you're almost speaking a different language. So it they was start, a different language. They start standardizing, well, Languedoc, Languedoc, right? Yeah, it was So they start language. standardizing this, and the cage, Louisiana French is, is out from under that. And then you have 400 years of change going and, in different directions. And, and we weren't particularly privy to those changes. We did, you know, we were, we were away. We were on right. another continent. Right. We didn't know they were going to make all those choices about the passé composé and and <laughs> True. Yeah. vocabulary and all. You know, we didn't have a way of. We weren't connected. And as as some scholars uh, uh, have pointed out, uh, a lot of times that that variety is more strongly preserved on the peripheries, you know, on the edges rather than the center. In the center. They don't have to worry about that because they they are self defined. They are they are the ones who determine what is correct and not correct. So they don't have to worry as it changes. It that whatever they decide, the change is it, it becomes official, and so they don't have to you know don't have to worry. But but out on the edge, you don't know, and so you you hang on to old things and acquire new things, and so the variety is much great tends to be much greater. On the edges. Well, that's one of the things that I wanted to to, to propose to you because I've been thinking about this before I came here. This idea that, in many ways, Louisiana French represents the French from a long time ago, and in many ways, it's it's it's, it's also, very modern. It's also very modern. And it's also very modern. I'll give Look. you an example. You said <clears throat> you mentioned "sile" for the demonstrative. I didn't even know that existed. I had to go Google it and found out it did exist a long time ago. What word? Sila, C-I-L. Oh, yeah. And uh, that obviously doesn't exist today, but it did. Here's another one. Tom Klingler told me that uh, it has been attested for <laughs> centuries and centuries ago, the present progressive with Apre. He said, he said, you can see that from centuries ago oh, in that same area of France. That, so there's, there's, there's ways that it, it, it still maintains the the old French, so to speak, but then also, you know, like we talk about in, in, in a few minutes, it's, it's also had a lot of changes and, and it's also come into the modern world, so to speak, in a sense. Yeah, and some of the changes, <clears throat> some of the changes are held in contempt uh, <clears throat> by the French-speaking purveyors of what, you know, uh, <clears throat> because they, they, they point out that Louisiana French has a lot of English that's encroached. It's unavoidable. Well, we do. We do have, you know, I mean, I, you can hear somebody say, uh, uh, you <clears throat> have flat tire. Uh, you know. <laughs> but I have to admit, it, it does sound funny. Yeah, it does. But, but, <laughs> <clears throat> but there were no tires and no way to know what, how, right. how to express that they were flat, right? So, until recently. So, right. w when we got that item, we got that thing, we incorporated the word for it. Right. But, but, the French do this because they, oh, yeah. you know, they, ils vont faire du shopping pour le weekend. They use du shampoing. Uh, well, right now we're doing yeah. an interview. You know, <laughs> yeah. Ils font du business, du marketing, mm -hmm. uh, du management. I mean, if they can do, if they can do that, why can't we? Why, why is it okay for them, for anybody else to incorporate words from outside? Whereas, you know, when we do it, we're ridiculed. Right. Now, when my grandmother, by the way, when my grandmother said mon garçon you have flat tire that was a french term for her that's right i remember you mentioned this in your paper that's the term that became the term the french term for that that phenomenon right 
She didn't. It didn't occur to her that that was an that was an English term. The joke you told about the woman who went in to get her car fixed. <laughs> yeah, and she all of the words for the car part she says in in English, and you pointed out in her it's completely French. So she was still speaking French, right? She had in, in fact asked for a French mechanic, and, and then she <laughs> and because she said I she said make, rotor je peux pas tire. Yeah, je peux pas en anglais. Uh huh. Uh, yeah. Rotate the tire. <laughs> But you like change la batterie, yeah. Well, batterie, right? In 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 continental standard French, is, is the the drums, right? And um, what's it? Uh, and there's a completely different word for what we consider the battery. Pile, pile, yeah, yeah. But um, we already used pile for and pile de, you know. So why would we confuse that? There was another word that de- didn't make a confusion. It's just like char, right? Char. And voiture, the French decided to use voiture. Well, we voiture for us was a horse-drawn buggy. Why, why would we adopt a word for this new contraption that was going to create a confusion? You didn't know if he had a car or a buggy. So right. we said, okay, right. well, ça c'est une voiture, on va appeler ça un char. Right. They didn't, nobody decided that. It just it evolved, but it evolved in a way that avoided the confusion. I did some translation of some 17th, 1700s documents for a professor at Tulane one time. And this guy was using voiture for the boats that going up and down the up and down the bayous and i realized that, that what all it was was a conveyance it's a conveyance that's all it was it could be any vehicle so to speak and and then <clears throat> I, I i got to thinking about that very example but then the other thing is they come here and like you mentioned they start learning new words for new things that they need even early on i'll give an example i was in limoges in france and i had never thought about this i never knew the word you know i've Fluent French speaker, had a master's degree in French, blah, blah. And I'm going in and I'm in the grocery store and I come across these okra. And I'm looking at them thinking, I didn't expect to see okra at a grocery store in France. Well, it makes sense now that I think about it, but I didn't expect it. And I looked on the little sign on the front and it said, Gumbu. And it all clicked in my head. (laughs) It all clicked in my head, you know, that I remembered uh, uh, being told by, you know, this old Cajun lady from my childhood. If it doesn't have okra, it's not gumbo. Well, it makes sense. They named the Durham soup after the okra. Yeah, the uh, gumbo is the uh, Wolof word, West African word for mm-hmm. okra. Uh, and, and there, and, and there are quite a few of uh, uh, things like that. I mean, well, for example, <clears throat> the French, you know, and plaquemine, persimmon, right? I didn't know that one. Yeah, plaquemine. Uh-huh. We have plaquemine here. They have plaquemine in France. Well. The French had a word for plaquemine. You can find it in any dic- any French dictionary. Plaquemine is a persimmon. But for some reason, contemporary French speakers in France apparently forgot they had that word, or I don't know what they used. They 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 when they started importing persimmons from North Africa, they used the African the 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 Maghreb word kaki for that fruit. Uh-huh. And so you, you go to the market now and it says kaki, and I'm thinking, why kaki? Yeah, yeah, bon mot français, plaquemine pour ça. And so you say, oh, Mr. Sonde Plaquemine. And they say, oh, ma grand-mère disait ça. <laughs> and my reaction is, but toi, tu devrais dire ça aussi. <laughs> well, it's another <clears throat> example of it maintaining the history. This other one I've always thought was funny is, wawaron. Wawaron is the word for the bullfrog, right? And I don't think any French person would recognize that word. No, it comes from here. Right. It's completely new. And then I noticed in your, is it Shawi? Is that how it's pronounced? For the... But that's another example, isn't it? Because the Those French are, have les hatons laveurs. <laughs> no, they didn't have 
They didn't. It, it was a, it was a, a Western Hemisphere animal, and so when they first saw that, they said they came up with this descriptive term, raton laveur, rat-like thing that washes its stuff. Right. Whereas our ancestors had a different uh, strategy. They looked to the people who were already here and said, come on, vous appelez ça? Shall we? Uh, okay, shall we? They used the word from the, yeah. Yeah. Which made more sense. <laughs> which, is the, which is the better solution. Right. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> let's see. I do want to get in here because you talked about after statehood. By the way, <clears throat> Louisiana became a colony in 1699. Statehood was 1803. The ca- Louisiana became a colony in 1682. It, they okay, started well, I, I they started to... developing it in 1699. Okay, maybe that's what I meant. Then. Yeah, yeah. My notes are my notes are right. short. So <clears throat> the um, it was already obviously French when the Cajuns arrived. One of the reasons they mm-hmm. came here, although it was under Spanish control. So this By would then, have been yes. late 1700s because uh, statehood was 1803. I mean, the Louisiana Purchase was 1803. So they came, it went from Spain to Napoleon, who basically flipped it. So you have the late 1700s, the Cajuns are arriving. So they're arriving in they a... Began, they began arriving in 1764, I say Cajuns, I should yeah. say Acadians, because right. they're not called Cajuns at this point. Right, right. So they Well, wait, I, well, I don't know. <clears throat> they, weren't, they weren't called Cajuns for sure, but they weren't, they weren't called Acadians either. They were called Acadiens or Cajuns. Yeah. Now, that J, D-I, is the same J... J, uh, linguistic shift that we find in le bon Dieu ou le job. So the people who from Cadien would have called themselves Cadien from that same rule. And there are maps of what is now Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, which was Acadie. There are maps, historical maps, that refer to the place as La Cadie. So what oh, were yeah. they called? I've seen that actually. Yeah. What were they called? I don't know. What, I'm not sure. We know what they were called, or what they called themselves. What I do know is that, contrary to contemporary, you know, some people's contemporary opinion, the the identity, Kajian, I don't know how far back it goes, but it certainly goes as far, far as far back as my my grandparents and their parents. Right. You know, it's, I've always and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's, I've always believed it. That the general idea was that this the term Cajun, or as a maybe as a term, maybe as a culture, maybe you know the way they use it today, not so much. But it kind of developed when the Acadians or Acadiens began to create a culture when they were mixing with all of the other right. Germans and the Italians. And what 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 the Acadians mixing with the other ones produced was the Cajuns. This is this has been what I've always read. That's one way. To, that's a good way to understand the the difference between the purely Acadian element and this new, more creolized, you know, com- more complex uh, thing that we call sometimes referred to as Kajian. There's a lot of people who call themselves Kajian that don't have much Acadian, much or any Acadian direct ancestry at all. But you know, who cares? I mean, it's a it's an identity they they came to identify with and i mean i i for one am am not willing to travel to <clears throat> mamu and tell all those people they're not <laughs> if you tell them that you better duck <clears throat> true that true that but one of the things i wanted to point out for the audience is what we call cajun french is not the french of louisiana there are lots of different varieties of french in louisiana because you have it coming in Different time periods, different migrations, and it begins to all mix together. It, well, actually, it kind of doesn't all mix together because to this day, there's a 
a, a, you know, a, a noticeable difference between the way people from Pierrepart and people from uh, Abbeville and people from St. Martinville and people from Terrebonne speak French. And some of it's some of its pronunciation, some of its vocabulary, some of its grammar, some of you know, but to this day there's still sub regional varieties. Well, it, you stole my thunder because what I was the story that I was just fixing to tell you, <clears throat> I um I remember very specifically this happened within a two year, a two week period around Easter one year. I was uh I was teaching in Baton Rouge and I met the grandmother of one of my students, and uh, she was from Bro Bridge, and she and I. We talked without any problem, 15, 20 minutes. No problem whatsoever. And I remember this specifically. It must have been around Easter because I went down to Pierre Park. <laughs> and I, all the Cajuns were out there with the crawfish on the big tables and everything. And they had, you know, they were, they were enjoying their Easter Sunday. I, it must have been on Easter Sunday. I went into the grocery store and, and listened to some people speaking French and got as close as I could. Honestly, I didn't understand a word, not a single word. And I had, I won't mention who it is on the on the podcast, but I spoke one time to a very prominent, very prominent musician in 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 South Louisiana, and I tried to speak French to him. He responded in French, and I did not understand a word. And I think he might have been a little insulted because he had to switch back to English. And I, but I could not get what he was saying at all. And so, but I, but I always remember. But why is this? Because me and this lady in Bro Bridge had no problem whatsoever. Me and Amanda Lafleur speaking French have no problem whatsoever. So the varieties are not just small differences; they could be huge. Yeah, and sometimes they produce uh, odd misunderstandings. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, it's important, by the way. It's important to to not include in that misunderstanding the difference between what we would call, what we would call any any of the various varieties sub-regional varieties of Louisiana French with Louisiana Creole you know if well, you it could if have been that they were speaking Louisiana Creole then if, if you where in Pierre part maybe no, no. Vachery, yes Vachery? okay Vachery, uh you know white people and and people of color are are altogether liable to speak what we would linguistically call Louisiana Creole now whereas in 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 Pierre part you should have I'm surprised you would not have understood that because it that is one of the places where Acadian French has been preserved most intact. Well maybe it's just a, a, a one off bad moment then because I, I just I couldn't get a word, not a single word. And you know, sometimes little things will throw you off. Like, you know, if you go down to Lafourche, the h huh for the je, the huh for the huh je sound, you know, like and holy fee. I mean, a little of that in a sentence will flat throw you off. True. True. Yeah, I get that. Hem ta hoop. Yeah, I don't know what you said. J'aime ta jupe. Ah. Tell a girl. <laughs> so if you, know, if you have more than one or t in, in, in a sentence, you don't have enough to grab onto, right? Right. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. I guess it makes you know, sense. The classic line was hem ta hoop and hem pala wika hang. Right? Sounds like <laughs> Native American, right? So, or some kind of foreign. Right. It's j'aime ta jupe, mais j'aime pas la way the way it hangs, sahang. So you wow. English in yeah. there, and then the pronunciation factor, and then you know, the, it, it it's enough to throw you go so completely yeah, I off. You think, well, that's what you said. Yeah. yeah. Now, if you listen to it thirty times, you realize, oh, that's what they're doing. You know, which is the value of transcription. 
because sure. it forces you to listen to it 30 times. Sure. We were doing a transcription uh, exercise in one of the classes here at UL uh, just a couple of years ago. And we, the class knew that we were talking to a woman. We, we, made, we were deliberately transcribing an interview with a woman because we wanted to have household terms, you know, uh, kitchen term, whatever, you know, that, that would be more of a, uh, you know, uh, historically woman's domain. And at one point she was saying, uh, Ouais, tu vois, uh, la nouvelle année, on fait, on fait des, des choux et des black eyes. I got that one. I did catch that one. Well, they were, they were absolutely b- befuddled. <laughs> what is that? And I said, it's black eye peas. <laughs> <laughs> right. But the, the switch was too fast for him. And I, uh-huh. you know, it took a while to penetrate it. Good night. I want to ask you one quick question, going back to a couple of things that we've talked about um, already. What year, remind me, what year does Joe Falcon record Allons en Lafayette? 1928. Okay, so that's in that period that we're talking about mm-hmm. earlier, because he's considered the first recording. I don't, Lomax didn't do that recording. He went to a studio to do that one. Huh? No, no, right. Uh, he was invited to a uh, uh, studio in New Orleans, actually to a hotel room in New Orleans where they recorded him. Him and his wife went. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing, I want you talking about how the rural areas didn't didn't develop, didn't adopt English as quickly. Sylvie Dubois recently wrote a book that talked about this, where this idea, and she documents how the changeover to English was a lot slower than than um, has been believed up to this point. But one of the things I wanted to ask you before we moved on, now this was 20 years ago, I asked her, I said, Sylvie, does this still exist? And she said, Jared, probably not. But I wanted to ask you, 20 years ago when she wrote a paper, she had, as one of the people that she was interviewing, a monolingual. Do you think there's any monolinguals left? Uh, no. Okay. Um, moving on. Um, so 1940s. Very important here. The growth of the music in the dance halls. This was important in the in the development of what, at least what is considered today to be Cajun culture. Right? And this is a big deal. Well, the dance hall phenomenon started, you know, in the 20s and 30s. Went, got more public dance halls in the 40s. And then um, it also coincided with the waning of what we would have called historically traditional Cajun music. Uh, by then, radios and record players and other factors, uh, you know, socioeconomic factors were, were putting a lot of pressure on Cajun culture in general. And, and you start getting swing bands and the accordion disappears and people are starting to sing in English uh, pretty routinely. Even even Cleo Mafalcon, who went with her, her husband, Joe, to record the first Cajun records, um, by then she was singing "Hand Me Down My Walking Cane" and and uh, a whole right. bunch of songs in English. So right. you know, I mean, and and they weren't doing this out of any, they weren't traitors or anything. They were just, you know, this is what's happening. That's what was going on around. This is what was going on. Who was the um, Doctor Honestly, I have this bad uh, habit of I, I'm just not good with names. The the guy who sang um, La Puerta Nahia, D.L. Menard. Okay, that's right. Dio Menard. Dio Menard talked about himself as the Cajun Hank Williams. Not, you know, and and he was very much like Hank Williams in his presentation. Well, 
Am I wrong there? He sounded like him. He did sound like him. <laughs> but I remember him. I saw an interview with him where he was talking about or, or people called him or he called himself or he kind of attributed a lot of his influence to Hank Williams. He did. He, he, saw, he met Hank Williams uh, uh, early in his career and uh, he emulated him in a lot of ways. And that's one of the most famous Cajun songs there is, La Puerto Now, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so the 1955 Bicentennial, why was that important? I read your papers, but I want you to tell yeah. our audience. Yeah, the, in 1955, there was a, a, a celebration of the, the, the 1755 uh, beginning of the exile of the Acadians. It was, you know, 200 years uh, and uh, one would one might fairly wonder why would why would a people who have been brutally exiled in, in a in a genocide uh, why would they want to celebrate the bicentennial of the beginning of that terrible event and the reason is because they were still here they were still around to celebrate they had survived it mm-hmm. it was a way of saying hey yeah you you took your best shot but we're right. still here right. And uh, that bicentennial celebration uh, caused a reconsider, a reconnection uh, between the Acadian communities from Eastern Canada and South Louisiana, and it 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 brought an awareness of a, a historical connection that had, for many, faded from memory. It renewed it, and. Um, a lot of, some people from here, influential people from here, politicians, and uh, went up there and saw what was there. And they saw their same la- people with same last names were living in French and and you know eating crawfish this big <laughs> that they call lobster. Anyway, they, they saw there were there were a lot of you right. know, pretty remarkable uh, retentions, and they came back and said, "Hey, you know, we have this valuable thing. Let's not lose it." Okay. I wanted to go into the Falk Affair, but I'm, I'm going to leave that alone. Uh, I'll put it on the website. Um, Codafil is established in 1968, and you talked about the beginnings of a literary movement in the 70s. And I, I wanted to I wanted to talk about that for a minute because I want to well, finish. It's all related the, to the Falk Affair. Okay, well then I then let's talk about it. What, what's going on here. Well, when 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 Codafil, uh, when Codafil was, you know, gearing up what the effort to, as they put it, preserve. French and Louisiana, and you know there hadn't been a whole lot of careful consideration about how to do that or what to do exactly, and uh, so you know if you use the word preserve, you're implying that you're preserving something that is there and you want to keep it. Mm-hmm. But what what early Codafil efforts was doing was you know, importing French teachers from all over the place. And, and well, that's been one of the critiques of Codafil, right? Basically, yeah, they were basically replacing French. They right. Were re- the Belgians. Well, and they- you know, under the guise of improving it. Or make- right. And the, the, the line was, Jimmy DiMaggio used to say, um, Cajun French is not a, a legitimate language. It's only an oral language. And, and I'm, it might, you know, at that point, one, would, one could say, well, what language is it? There is no strictly <laughs> written language, right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, but it's only an oral language. Doesn't have a re- it doesn't have a grammar. Well, of course it has a grammar. Yeah. How, you can't be a language. It would, otherwise, it would be like chickens cackling. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's a gra- It has a it has a grammar. Just you know, it's just a variant grammar. It's not, and and it hasn't been described. But there's of course a grammar. There, you know, it's very consistent too. When I see, 
verbs are conjugated and, and everything in, in a consistent way. And it's not written. Well, yeah, it's not written, but, you know, there's a lot of Arabic speech speakers who can't write Arabic, but that doesn't mean that Arabic can't be written by people who right. can write Arabic. Right. So somebody, who, a, a non-literate Arab, Arabic person, what that person says could be written by a literate Arab, Arabic person. Right. So it doesn't mean that, that it's, it doesn't mean that there's no written form. It right. just means that they don't possess the ability to produce that written form, but other people might. Right. So by, by the, by the 1970s, there was a growing number of people, you know, my age and around there, my generation, uh, who had gone to school and learned French and learned to read and write it and learned how the, how the system works visually, graphically. And it, it occurred to us to, well, I, I could write everything my, my grandmother says. Mm -hmm. She can't, but I can. Mm -hmm. Actually, my grandmother could. She used to send me to the store with grocery lists in, in French. But, you know, it, what I'm saying, it, just because somebody is not literate in a language that they speak doesn't mean that that, la that language can't be written. Right. And that's what we were arguing. And Falk uh, was arguing that this whole business of, of, you know, inserting French back into the school system uh, should be done in such a way that uses the French that's already here as an asset, a resource, and doesn't try to displace it or get rid of it to replace it with something from outside. And he was right. Now, the way he did it was curious and problematic because he he devised he know he he noticed that you know the french people the french-speaking people he was talking about dealing with uh didn't read or write french but they they had learned to read or write english m many of them and so he devised a kind of pseudo phonetic writing system using english phonetics as a so so like you know um foray would be uh, F O R A Y E. Are you something right? <laughs> it was using English phonetics system to represent that hurts my eyes well, and my ears <laughs> to, to represent how people speak, spoke. Anyway, uh, it, he had a good idea, but it was badly uh, pulled off. Now, because he, he 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 developed. Have you ever seen his book? No, it's really worth seeing. It's no. got it, it. It is one of the most uh, effective, brilliant collections of lexicon and and expressions, you know, natural native expressions. And it's got the English, and then it's got this phonetic, pseudo-phonetic transcription thing that that if you say it out loud, it it approximates what you would say in French. And all he was missing was the third column where you would have used the French graphic system to show what that was. If, if, if the middle column had, if that second column had been a pronunciation guide, fine, but it was an end to it. It became it an end itself, yeah. which was the problem. You can't, I mean, you, if, if anybody, if we learned to write that way, how, who, with whom would we have communicated? Right. Right. Uh, we would have been, we would have been ghettoizing ourselves. So anyway, uh, there were many of us, as you know, Richard Gidry, Amanda, me, and Brenda Mounier, a bunch of who who understood and agreed with the, the principle of 
of validating Louisiana French, integrating Louisiana French into the way the way we was we were teaching French in Louisiana, mm -hmm. so that so as not to alienate, so as not to rip that from you know the system, but not the way Falk was doing it. So it was it was a complicated time. But anyway, what what our reaction to both the early Codafil, and I say early Codafil because by 1980, Codafil had understood that Louisiana French was important and began to integrate it. They hired Richard Yidry, for example, mm -hmm. and Amanda Lafer, and a lot of other people mm -hmm. to work on that. But um, that was a, that when Erlene Broussard was was involved in Codafil at those days. Yeah, yeah. The early stuff, uh, their 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 early take on it was. Um, was problematic. It, so we were we were trying we were working against that, and at the same time against the the, the version that Falk came the solution that Falk came up with. We had to come up with something else, something Work that we felt like it was going to be yeah. viable and not rip and not you know not uh, rip ourselves away from the francophone the, the international francophone community. I didn't want. We didn't want to. We didn't want to uh, divorce ourselves. We wanted to force them to accept us in our own terms. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. And you know, while I'm at it, what was what was the the value? What was the importance of that? Why did we want to do that? Well, it's because it wasn't just a matter of preserving f French. It was a matter of preserving this French. Correct. There's a difference. C'était pas le français. C'était ce français. Mm -hmm. This French that produced those stories and songs and, and oral histories that we all, you know, felt like represented who we were. You know, in other words, were we going to start transposing Jolie Blonde into standard French? <laughs> you know, why, why in the world would we do that? Yeah, I can't imagine just we pass it devant ta porte. No, yeah. <laughs> it's all it's a different animal, you know? Yeah. Hi. Okay. <clears throat> In closing, remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you will find further information about this episode. Like more information about the guest, a selected bibliography, and any links mentioned in this episode. As the saying goes, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell us. You can tell a friend by rating us five stars on iTunes and by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews. Don't forget to subscribe when you're done and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. For any feedback, positive or criti critical, <laughs> write to us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com Tell us what you think, what we can do better, or even suggest a topic, uh, a topic for an upcoming episode.